Robin Scott Elliott is a former sports presenter and now full-time writer living on the west coast of Scotland. His novels for young people include Over the Sea to Sky, about the flight of Flora MacDonald and Bonnie Prince Charlie, The Tsar's Curious Runaways, an extraordinary story about the living exhibits in Tsar Peter the Great's Circus of Curiosities and what became of them after the death of the Tsar. And his most recent novel, The Acrobats of Agra, a story set during the Indian Rebellion of 1857, published by Everything with Words and with a gorgeous cover design and internal illustrations by Holly Ovenden. All of these stories are connected by a feel for history and a classic love for adventure. And it would seem the thrill of being on the run or running away. There's so much to talk about today, uh, but first I'd like to welcome Robin to In the Reading Corner. Thanks, Nikki, and thanks very much for having me. So exciting, and it is a very rich book, and uh, we've got a lot to cover in our half an hour together. Um, I wanted to start with the history, though, because it's a history that, in spite of the connections between Britain and India, it's not something that is probably well known. And your story starts in 1857. I have read your author's notes, so I know there's a personal connection here. And I wondered if we could start with that and you can tell us a little bit about how you became interested in this period of history. Absolutely. Well, and as you said, I, I love history. History's been a feature all through other books I liked to read as a, as a kid were history books. I did a history degree and I've always kind of read history all through my life. But um, in my, my first book, The Tsar's Curious Runaways, that was from reading a about a period of history that I didn't know about. And this one was much the same, except the family, there's a bit of a strange start to the story that my, I think it's great, great grandfather, James Scott Elliott, actually, um, he went out to India in the 1840s to work for the awful East India Company. And he wrote a diary. And years ago, my granddad spent ages transcribing this diary um, and typing it out. And he would send it all around the family and none of them ever read it because they thought it was really dull and it was just granddad's obsession. And then my dad was going to throw the diaries away. And I said, no, hang on, I'll, I'll take those. And I just left them beneath my desk for a few years, actually. And then this story gets weirder now, but my daughter got a rabbit and I share my office with the rabbit. We have equal space. And she started to nibble these folders into my desk. So I picked them up and then just sort of opened them and just started reading. And there's actually... It's quite an amazing story that James had, um, that he left Britain. He, he lost his job and the only job he could find was with the East India Company. So he set off on this amazing voyage, you know, all the way down Africa, around the Cape. And they, the, the ship hit a whale. Um, the poor sailor got washed overboard and they saw him being waved away and there was nothing they could do. The ship got followed by an albatross, which, you know, in those days was they were quite sort of superstitious and that was seen as, as bad luck and there was some sort of scandal on board but because James is obviously a Victorian it's only hinted at in the diaries but I began to think this is quite this is quite a good background for a story so I started to work on the idea of a brother and sister being sent out to India as used to happen with children in those days you know they would stay at school in Britain and then be sent out maybe you know a few years later to, to be reunited with their parents so I started working on this and then Coincidentally, as a family, we went away for a weekend to Edinburgh. And my, my eldest daughter, she's a, an obsessive reader, and she loves just browsing in bookshops. 
she went to this second-hand bookshop just near Edinburgh Castle and while she was browsing I was just sort of wandering through the history section and I found this history is called The Great Mutiny um, by Christopher Hibbert and it's about it's about 20 30 year old history book and then when I was reading that I got to the siege of Agra and there was one line and they were, they were talking about all the people who got trapped in the siege as well as the you know your sort of basic British soldiers and British civilians there are all sorts of other people who are trapped there and there was one line that said including the traveling circus from France and that just made me stop in a real sort of it was actually a eureka moment you know when you when you think of a story it's normally kind of led you get a bit here a bit there gradually build it up but that was an actual like that just leapt off the page at me and I thought you know that's a fantastic story waiting to be told yeah you could not make that up I mean that no. is just uh, fantastic and circuses actually were quite common in colonial India I think during the Victorian period so fascinating so this diary what a gift as well and then this book, were there any other sources that were very illuminating for you about this period? Well, from that, there's obviously, there's some good um, in the historians like William Dalrymple, who are writing at the moment, who are absolutely fantastic about India and, and the British Empire and the East India Company India. But I also found various kind of first-hand sources as well. There's, there's an extraordinary book by a woman called um, R.M. Copeland, or Copeland. And her husband was a, was a minister in India when, when the rebellion happened and, and he was killed and she just escaped and she wrote this quite extraordinary detailed account of what happened and how she got away and then she was actually in the siege of Agra so there's lots of detail in there about you know I think what you all need for, for children's stories I love having details about you know what they ate what they wore when do they wash all this sort of stuff that just makes stories more real and she had all that sort of detail in there and I also found a list of all the people who were caught in the siege. And they had all the names on there. Most of the names in the book are actually taken either from James's diaries or from the siege list. So they were all real names. And they all, they all do sound like something, very sort of Dickens names. Like there was a Mr. Slasher who was an accountant. And, and Miss Goodenough was a real teacher who was in the siege of Agra. That's all I know about her. But, you know, Miss Goodenough's just the perfect name, I think, for a teacher. Absolutely. I'll come to her name later, but there's so many other things to talk about first. And part of this is, is a real historical figure in India as well, who was an independence fighter during this time, uh, the Rani. Now, see, she figures in your story. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about her. I think this is one of the wonderful things, one of the things I love about history that, I, you know, I'd absolutely I'd never heard of her. And I had no idea that actually in India, she is extremely well known in India and is held up as the kind of one of the first freedom fighters. So she was born in the 1840s and um, she learned to read and write and use swords and wrestle. And she was a weightlifter. And this was all when she was a teenager, which was all, they were all things that women of the time, by and large, were not, were not allowed to do. Um, and then she married the Maharaja of Yansi and continued, even now she was a sort of queen expected to play a certain role, she still continued to do things the way she wanted, like she wore a turban, women didn't wear turbans, men did. And then in 1853, her husband died. And this is one of the ways that the, that the East India Company kind of gradually took over bits of India, is that when a, a Maharaja or a, or a prince died, they would then claim with sort of legal loopholes claim the territory for their own but the rani was like you know i'm not having this no way and she's there's this famous quote i will not give up my yancy and so she took the throne and she came to some sort of agreement with the british and when the rebellion started 
she kind of undenied about which side she would join because she could see clearly what the damage that would be done to her to her state and her people if they you know if she chose the wrong side and in the end she sided with the rebels and a lot of this history of the times is a little bit murky and it's difficult to be absolutely precise what happened but anyway so she she rebelled and led an army in battle herself and one of the legends of her is when the British came to attack her city. The city was just about to fall and she leapt over the battlements on her horse with, with her son, her young son strapped to her back and disappeared off into the forest where she, where she again, she linked up with her army and she ended up leading an army against the British in several battles until she was actually killed in 1858, so a year after this, she was killed in battle. And since then she's become this kind of mythical figure, the Rani and there's statues of her, you know, all, all over India. There's all sorts of stories like in the sort of Robin Hood, Joan of Arc way that, that it's difficult to know how much are true and how much are legends. But I kind of like that mm. uh, story to be part legend, part true. Yeah, a bit like Boudicca as well, I guess, yes. from the Iceni uh, tribe. Yes. Uh, but I do want to come to your story, which is a cracking adventure story. Uh, it has three uh, main characters. The narrator is a young girl called Beatrice Spelling. So tell us where she came from in your imagination. Beatrice, because I'm Scottish and then the, the origins of the story through my great-great-granddad's diary, he was Scottish. Um, so that's why I decided that I wanted her to be Scottish in the first place. And also there's a big connection between Scotland and the number of people who left Scotland to go around the world to be part of, of the empire. And so she is... Uh, a classic kind of empire child left at home so she's left with her granny way up the west coast of Scotland and part of the idea of the story is I think my, my granny lived up the west coast and it's a magical place and it's quite a mysterious place and I like the idea of mixing sort of history and mystery so she goes from the, the, the magic of the highlands which is full of folklore and stories to to India, which is obviously a completely different climate and countries, but it's got that same kind of mystery and mystical and folklore background. So I wanted to take her from there and then put her out there. And tell us a little bit about uh, the voice of your narrator. I know it's written in the first person, but um, she also talks occasionally directly to the reader, doesn't she? And uh, I wondered if you imagined her talking to anybody specifically uh, when you were writing in her voice. Actually, when I first wrote the book, it was in the third person and my editor, Mika, she, it was her who actually suggested, I think this would, this would work better if you rewrote it and, and narrated it from B's point of view. So when she's kind of narrating, I kind of imagine her, because the way I became a, a, a specifically children's writer was through telling stories to my daughters. I used to tell them these long rambling stories to, get, to try and get them to go to sleep. And um, they kept saying to me, you must please write, you know, write us a book, let's write it down. So I kind of think of her talking to them or kind of someone on her, you know, a friend of hers or someone who's her age back home and possibly occasionally also her granny, who's her, the one kind of adult that she's ever really connected with. That's interesting because that really comes through, uh, I think, in the way that it's written. Um, and it is quite an unusual and distinct voice, as I say, because of the way, not that it's a totally unknown thing, but the way that she sometimes comes out of herself to talk directly to the reader. Um, your second character is Jacques, who's part of this French 
circus. Tell us a little bit about him. So Jacques is the kind of, of, of the three main characters, he, I think, is the kind of realist in a way, because he's a little, uh, a wee bit older, and he's the one who has kind of been out around the world, and he's, whereas the other's life has maybe learned, he, his, his is a life that's been experienced, and he's been to several different countries. He's had a tough start in life. For his family, he comes from a circus family, and um, in the book, I use the circus kind of as a bit of a refuge for all of them, in fact, in the end, but um, he loses his mother, then his father's arrested in, in Paris, because the one time of life when he's settled is there in Paris, which, which in those days, that was the kind of home of the circus, the big circus, they would get huge crowds. But then his life falls apart when his father's arrested and sent to prison. So him and his sister, um, Julietta, they join this traveling circus, and he sets off to India, which, which was a popular destination, and people could get really rich. So they would go, there's a, these people called the Lockup Brothers, who went to India as clowns kind of around about this time and came back with a couple of elephants and set themselves up as elephant trainers and became these extremely rich men and really famous circus entertainers. So Jacques part of this world and this is the world he's grown up in. On the surface, it's all glittery and magic, but underneath he's had this quite tough life. So he's quite, um, he's just more of a realist than the others. He's a very skilled uh, trapeze and high wire artist, but he also has this wonderful relationship with a tiger, my goodness me, and gets up close with a tiger, and the tiger becomes part of this adventure that they have together. I wonder if you could tell us about the third character in this band um, of, of companions. He's Pin, and he's the uh, Indian boy in the story with an absolutely amazing memory. Tell us a bit about how he fits in. So Pin, or Pingali, Pingali Rao, is his... Is his um, full name he is a servant and in in the research i did for this book one of the kind of most amazing things that i discovered about kind of everyday life was just the presence of servants so if you were if you were a, a wealthy or important britain in india you would have a servant or less to do everything and there was one governor who um was an extraordinarily strict man and he liked everything to be done exactly as he wanted like he had really extreme things like he didn't like he didn't like women to peel oranges in public. So if a woman wanted an orange, they had to go to the bathroom to peel it. But anyway, so he would have a servant to do everything. And one of his servants was a page turner. So we'd just stand behind him as he was at work and turn the pages of his document, his manuscript or his book or whatever. So this is what, what Pin is. He's a, he's a page turner. And um, he is an orphan and he has worked in the fort in the palace at Agra all his life. And then he got kind of promoted to, to page turner. So he just stands there all day, turning pages, turning pages. And I was just thinking, what would you do? I think a lot of people, you just you would just tune out, wouldn't you? But I just thought about if he starts reading, he teaches himself to read. So he then reads everything that the governor is reading. And then he's talking to um, all the other, uh, the other servants in the kitchens and around the palace and then talking to Indians around the city. He then becomes more or less the, the most informed person in Agra, full stop, whether he's British or Indian. Um, so that's the sort of one key to his character. But the, the other is this, he's got this kind of thirst for knowledge. He just wants to learn, he just soaks it all up. And, and he's, he's clever and he's proud of being clever. But he wants to, um, he's also, he's the boy without a birthday because he, he was found on a doorstep, so no one knows when he was born. And I think there's this sense with Pin that, He's looking for something which he 
probably never going to find. But he's, he just wants to go on looking and looking and learning and learning. But he wants to also to get out of Agra. And he wants to live a story that you can put in a book rather than he reads in a book. Yeah, absolutely. So these three are brought together and they form a bond and they decide to run away from uh, the fort. Uh, all of your characters, as I said earlier in the introduction, seem to be running or running away. That's, I guess, a classic in adventure stories. Yeah. And they all in some way seem to have been, their lives are affected by politics and power too. On their journey, they do come across Rani, the uh, queen that we've talked about. And I wondered if you could read us a little bit from that part of the story. Absolutely. So this is halfway through and they've, they've escaped from Agra. And the countryside at this time um, in India was really unsafe. And there were various different factions and bands ro- roaming the country as well as, well as the, the British. So basically anyone who took you prisoner, it would probably not go very well. So they've just been captured by... Um, the Rani's people and are taken to meet her. Prostrate yourselves before her highness, the Rani of Yansi, our queen feared by all Englishmen. A shove in Jacques's back emphasized the point as we stumbled across the village square. On your knees, dogs. No! Jacques and Pin kept their heads bowed. Only I looked up. A small woman, slight in stature, grown up but no taller than me, dropped from a magnificent chestnut horse. At first glance, she appeared dressed as a man, a turban of the whitest white on her head, and the same baggy white shirt and white trousers as her soldiers. But there were differences. She wore a broad golden belt from which dangled a golden dagger with a diamond glittering on the end of its handle. A pearl necklace was wrapped around her throat, and gold bracelets and anklets jingled as she stepped towards us on bare feet. Her long dark hair was tied into a plait. No human being is a dog. A man is a man and a woman is a woman, and I receive all equally. Her voice was smooth as honey, yet strong, certain. It sounded bigger than her, yet it was not the most remarkable thing about her. That was our eyes. The Rani had eyes like precious gems, eyes that won women and men to her side and made them follow her into battle. They persuaded people to live and die for her. Rise and approach me to plead your case. We shuffled forward on our knees, not ready to risk standing in her presence. Two more women slid from white horses and stood either side of her, her maids of honour, dressed like their queen but without the golden belt. Instead of daggers, they had curved swords in their plain belts. When the Rani went into battle, her maids of honour rode either side of her, ready to sacrifice themselves to protect their queen. I took a deep breath. Your Majesty, I began, this is the great Romanini. I'd found my voice again and had the glimmer of an idea. I pointed at Jacques, who bowed so low his fringe nearly brushed the ground. The great Romanini is the greatest acrobat the world has seen. He flies through the air with the greatest of ease. He'll have you gasping in a maze. Who are you? Interrupted the Rani, although I suppose queens are allowed to interrupt. I, um, I glanced at Jacques, he goes. I am Giulietta and I perform up there. I gestured to the sky. Hand in hand with the great Romanini, Jacques flung a glance at me. I ignored it. And who is he? Can he fly as well? A soft smile played across the Rani's face. Pin repeated Jacques's bow and outdid him for bendiness. His forehead introduced itself to the ground. Your most gracious majesty, I am trying only to help the great Romanini and uh, Giulietta find a way to escape the terrible troubles that have gripped our land. They are innocents in a struggle that has nothing to do with them. 
The Rani studied him, then turned her gaze to Jacques and me in turn. I could feel her eyes digging deep within me. The sensible decision is to have you executed. You're probably spies and I cannot afford to take risks. But you're mad, I began. Silence! The Rani gestured at me. We're in the midst of a life or death struggle. If I am weak, I will die and my people will be enslaved again. I gripped my hands in front of me to stop them shaking. Come on then, said the turbaned man who brought us to see the Rani. The great Rani has made a decision. I looked up and locked eyes with the Rani. I angled my chin up and out. Wait. The Rani raised the hand. Great acrobats, you say. I heard talk of the circus that came to Agra, and I have seen with my own eyes the circus tent before the city. She kept her eyes on me. I am not a cruel ruler. I am fair, so I will give you a chance. Prove to me you are who you say you are. Prove to me you are the acrobats of Agra and you will live. And followed by that is a really gripping moment in the story. I won't say what happens. Uh, in a sense, B has got two role models in this story. Uh, the Rani is one and the other is the teacher, Miss Goodenough. I don't know if you uh, deliberately saw them as role models when you were writing and uh, the kind of choices that she then has as a young woman. I definitely saw, it's interesting what you said about Miss Goodenough, I definitely saw the Rani as a role model because um, I think as I've got two daughters, Torin and Iona, and in my previous job as a sports journalist, I was always, I did quite a lot of work about women's sport and the fall off in the, in the number of girls doing sport once they get to, to teenage years. And so therefore you've then got the importance of having sort of strong female role models in sport. And then that obviously goes way beyond sport. And I saw the Rani in that mould. Um, but Miss Goodenough, you're right, she is a role model, but she is uh, a kind of role model, of a British role model of her times, because she's severely restricted by the society she's part of. So she is their teacher and she doesn't really have anywhere to go from there. She wants to not better herself, that's not the right description, but if she wants to go somewhere with her life beyond the normal, there are not many avenues she can go down and you know she finds there is nowhere to go so she's a role model and and B mentions her kind of throughout the story and she clearly has an effect on B and she wants to there's several times when you see B would be pleased because she knows Miss Goodenough will be pleased and towards the end what Miss Goodenough would have said comes back to B several times and helps her through certain situations so I think she's your kind of British Victorian role model and funny enough one thing my my um, eldest daughter said to me about Miss Goodenough is that um, maybe maybe this is the original Mary Poppins. This is where Mary Poppins came from, and maybe Miss Goodenough turns into Mary Poppins. So that's maybe another whole new story to get into. That's really interesting. And I, I was interested when you said at the beginning that this was a real name, because had you not told me that, I would have thought that you made that up to show that perhaps life was not good enough <laughs> for her yeah. compared to the Rani but maybe the name itself suggests certain things uh, when you're writing just interesting how that all comes together which leads me on to another question without telling us too much about the ending of the story I wanted to ask why you had chosen to write an epilogue uh, in general terms rather than leave the story where the story actually ends Partly because, as I said earlier, the book was originally written in, in the third person. So that was the original ending. But 
I really liked that ending and my editor Mika liked it as well. So that sort of stayed in place while I rewrote the rest of the book. And it seemed the way the B story ends is quite open. And I like open endings, but I think in children's books, you do need a sense of closure to stories. And I think this epilogue hopefully gives that. And it also just changes the angle a little bit compared to the rest of the book. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. I'm not going to say much about it because it's nice that people read it and discover that for themselves. I wanted to ask you about something I read in in an interview uh, that you gave um, a little while ago. And you said that to be a serious writer, you have to take your writing seriously. Could you expand on that a little bit for us and tell us what you mean by taking your writing seriously? I've always wanted to write stories and I've had several goes and not succeeded. And while doing that, I've worked as a journalist for, I don't know, uh, 25 years now. So I've worked with, I kind of work with words all my life. But journalism is so, um, you know, you do a story for tomorrow, then it's gone. Then you're doing the story for the next day and that's gone. And I used to never read stuff back. Um, and I still have problems reading stuff back what I write now because you always think I should have done that better I don't like that um, but obviously in um, writing books you have to read back again and again and again and again and change it in a way you never really finish because you still read an extract like that now and I think oh actually I shouldn't have used that word um, but also I think if you want to be a writer a lot of it comes down I think to practice and persistence because it, it's a path that you get an awful, awful lot of rejection on it you have to get used to dealing with that rejection. And I think you have to get used to looking at your work and thinking, I am, yeah, I am a writer. This is what I do. This is my job. So I will just go on and on and on and keep working at it and keep pushing it and keep trying and practicing. And you can play with your words and whatever, but just stick at it. So it sounds that perhaps one of the things that um, has been the greatest challenges in some respects is the kind of the editing process. Uh, what are the bits that have been most enjoyable for you? I think it's the, it's the actual, when you think of a story, because I always have a problem that I think of a story and you think, yeah, this really works. And if I do this and do that, and then I can set it here. And you just want to leap straight into the story. It's like there's a bit in the book, actually, where B, they come to this waterhole and B just jumps straight in. While the others sort of hang back going, well, well, we'll just be careful. Whereas the, so with stories, I like to kind of just, jump in and just start writing and then I normally have to go back and sort of just pull it all together a bit more bit more carefully but it's that initial excitement of thinking I've got a story here because the the one I'm working on at the moment which is based around um, an idea of about Robert Louis Stevenson who's who's a kind of massive writing hero of mine and how he wrote Treasure Island so it's a story about this and I just get really excited about it and I think that's the best moment it's when you set off on on the journey with your story. Wow, that does sound exciting. I'm also a Robert Louis uh, Stevenson yeah. fan. Um, so I can't wait to eventually read that one. I know you're working on it at the moment. But in the meantime, uh, readers will soon be able to read The Acrobats of Agra. Uh, Robin, thank you so much for talking to us today and for these superb, thrilling, gripping uh, stories at which we're going to keep gasping. So thank you so much. A pleasure, Nikki. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. 
Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.